Today I'm joined by Dr. Jamie Fusner. Jamie is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto and is the principal investigator in the Brain, Body and Perception Research Programme. The clinical research at the Brain, Body and Perception Research Programme aims to understand the brain's basis of perception, emotion and reward across conditions involving body image, obsessions and compulsions. Jamie joins us today to discuss his research specifically focusing on brain function in anorexia, body dysmorphia, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Hello, Jamie. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, good. good yeah, amazing. It's lovely to have you. Um, I will actually say, I think this is probably, I shouldn't say this, but um, it's quite funny. I was looking at your research on Twitter um, and the stuff that you were doing through the brain body and perception research program I thought this is so cool but I didn't really look at your bio and then I messaged you on Twitter to say can you come on a podcast and then I realized you were like this huge massive researcher and you'd already said yes I was like oh wow like I'm real so honored and privileged <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm really glad to do this uh, you know I, I think it's imp important to be able to let people know about what mm. these disorders are, especially body dysmorphic disorder. I think people generally know less about it. Cool. Uh, and, um, and also to share some of the research that we've done and other groups have done in this area. And in particular, how body dysmorphic disorder relates to eating disorders, because there is a lot of overlap and um, they may share some similar um, neurobiology. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, well, I'm really interested to kind of hear what you've been working on. So I guess to start with, you just kind of said it there, but some people might not know what body dysmorphia is. Would you mind just kind of explaining to us what it is? Sure. So body dysmorphic disorder is a psychiatric disorder and it's it's actually relatively common. So it affects about two and a half percent of the population. Wow. It's about one in 40 people have this disorder. And it's a disorder where people misperceive that something about their appearance is defective um, or an, an ugly in some way. Mm -hmm. And these are things, it really could be any part of the body that they could be concerned about. It tends to most often happen to people, uh, especially in Western cultures, uh, related to things from the neck up. So okay. skin and hair and nose are the most common concerns but it could be anything. So it could be concerns that um, somebody, uh, part of their body is like asymmetric or that they're not tall enough or that their genitals are misformed or not large enough or too large, or they're not muscular enough um, or they're too muscular or their skin has their, they have too much body hair or they have their hair's thinning or their hair's too crinkly. I, it, so it really can be anything about the appearance. And so what they do, what happens is they, they perceive these things and other people don't perceive them this way. So either other people don't see this at all, or they might see it if they kind of get in close and then they realize, okay, well there, you know, there are some imperfections because everybody has some imperfections. Not everybody's skin is of course, hundred percent smooth and, um, and no body parts are exactly symmetric and so forth. But what they're perceiving is that these things seem very prominent mm -hmm. and they, because they appear prominent to them, then naturally they assume that other people see it the way they do, mm -hmm. because it's not really intuitive that we might see the things differently than other people see. We generally kind of trust our vision. So 
they, in addition to having this perception, they also are preoccupied by these things. So preoccupied in the sense they think about them a lot. It's difficult not to think about them, even when they don't want to think about them. And they, and the thoughts about them will often get triggered if they see themselves in the mirror, see a picture, um, but it also can get triggered if they see somebody else and they see somebody else's nose and then it makes them think about their nose. Uh, and then they do these, they do behaviors. So another part of this diagnosis, you know, as outlined in something called the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual is that they, um, they do behaviors to try to fix their appearance or check their appearance or get reassurance about their appearance or do research about their appearance. So these could be things like checking in the mirror, um, in different lighting conditions or um, take pictures to see how it looks in different conditions or trying to um, research the ways that they might be able to change their appearance by getting some kind of procedure or to cover up their appearance or spending a lot of time figuring out what they can wear to try to cover it up or distract people from their, um, from their appearance features. And then it causes a lot of distress. So it causes distress being uh, anxiety, depression, shame, disgust, and it generally it impairs their ability to function. So they, because of this, they can't concentrate um, in school. Often, sometimes they drop out of school or they can't work um, or they can't work well, or they have a lot of difficulties having relationships, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. That That's a huge area of impairment um, because they feel like they're ugly and they feel like other people mm-hmm. will reject them because of it. And so um, it, and it can result in really serious consequences. So about 25% of people with BDD, body disorder, will attempt suicide in their life. Wow. Yeah, attempt, they'll actually attempt suicide. Wow. Wow. Gosh. So a lot of people don't know. I I was going to add that, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't know that they Mm -hmm. have body disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's another really important part of of the illness is that people's, what's called their insight is often low, which means that they don't realize that what they have is a psychiatric problem and they think that they have a physical problem. Um, so w- many people, when, when confronted with that, they'll think about things that they might do physically to solve the problem. They think the root of the problem is their appearance so that anybody that had appearance that looked like theirs would feel the way they do. So they think that that's, that's the root of the problem. And then they may put efforts into trying to fix that. Or sometimes they feel like they can't fix it. They just have like no solution. Uh, so, so it's, it's out there, it's very common, but mm-hmm. then not a lot of people know it and not a lot of people actually get treatment for it. Mm. because they don't often don't know it yeah well i suppose it, it's interesting isn't it you know if it if it feels something that's so real to you then why would you you might not comment on it or something or you might not seek treatment out for it if it feels so real um it's interesting actually because so i have um i don't i don't know whether i mentioned this to you when we were chatting but i have personal experience of body dysmorphia and I'd always linked it to my eating disorder because it was very body focused. And just as you were saying then about like um, face or hair or whatever, I have always been really preoccupied by my eyebrows. And to me, they are like completely different shapes. And I remember saying to my partner once, like, I've got to do something serious about my eyebrows. Like they're, they're complete. And he was like, I've been with you for four years and I've never even noticed Like, there's the slightest difference. And it was that, you know, even that it's literally only just occurred to me now that that could be related. Um, but it's, it, yeah, so interesting kind of how real and how much of a big deal that is for the individual compared to maybe to everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And then typically what, what people will experience is that if they, if they have 
say a similar issue and then they talk to somebody about it, you know, first of all, it may be hard to talk to other people about it because you might feel ashamed, ashamed, mm -hmm. you know, about it, like how it looks. And then a lot of people feel not only that, but then they might feel ashamed of bringing up something about their appearance because they think that they might sound like they're vain or they care too much mm -hmm. about their appearance sure. and how they might be judged about that. And then if they bring it up, then sometimes, I mean, often what happens is that the other person that they're bringing it up to says, uh, what, what I, I don't notice anything. What are you talking about? Like, I, I don't see it. And then, then it's hard to know, is that person, mm. like, do they really not see it? Or are they just trying to make me feel better? Yeah. Um, and so you don't know what to make of that. And, mm -hmm. and then it's hard to really probably feel like you want to talk about it with other people because mm -hmm. either they're just saying something to try to, you know, make you feel better or they're, or just, they're kind of like disregarding your concerns or mm -hmm. they, um, or they just don't understand. Yeah. I was just thinking that as you said that then, um, it, you know, if someone said, oh, I don't even notice it sort of thing. I, I know that from my perspective, I was very much like, this is a massive deal to me. And it's almost just diminishes those concerns. And then you kind of feel like, oh, why am I stressing about something that to everybody else is kind of so insignificant, which then makes you feel worse as well. Yeah, exactly. Then you feel worse. And then you feel like, okay, there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I care so much about this yeah. and maybe I'm just vain and superficial or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving that explanation. I think you, you painted the scene so nicely. Um, I wanted to ask, obviously, you're, you're working in the area of um, body dysmorphic disorder and how that links to eating disorder. So what kind of got you involved in that research? What sparked your interest? Yeah, so it, it goes back um, to when I was a resident in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So I was in training and I was... So initially I was interested in anxiety disorders and that, so I was working in an anxiety disorder clinic, kind of like a specialty clinic at UCLA. That's where I did my training. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then in that clinic, we also treat a lot of people with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Mm -hmm. And at UCLA, we have an OCD intensive treatment program also. And so um, I was very interested in that in my, in my third year. And then my fourth year, I decided to do what's called a, a chief residency in the anxiety and OCD program. So, um, so I, I was working in the OCD program at, at that point in time and seeing patients with OCD. And we would get a lot of people that had body dysmorphic disorder as what's called a comorbidity, like they had OCD and body dysmorphic mm -hmm. disorder. So I, I started to see some people that had, had that problem coming through. And then I would also see people that had maybe not a full-blown version of body dysmorphic disorder, but they would have symptoms of it, um, even though it wasn't like full body dysmorphic disorder. So I kind of noticed, oh, it, it seems it, it's interesting that it goes like hand in hand mm -hmm. with OCD. And this was actually before body dysmorphic disorder was put into the diagnostic and statistical manual category of obsessive compulsive related disorders. This is back, this is how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> back when um, it was in the, it, it was in a different category. It was a, considered a somatoform disorder, um, which most people know who who saw people clinically and who did research realized like it probably shouldn't go in that mm -hmm. category because it's really not like the other ones, but that much. Um, so, and a lot of people had the experience like clinically that I did is, Oh, like there's a lot of similarities to OCD also and to eating disorders. And, and so we saw it. So I was seeing that there. And then there was a clinician there um, who was working there at the time, a uh, name Ari Winograd. And he, 
um, his specialty was OCD and also body dysmorphic disorder. And he was treating um, people. He's a psychotherapist who's treating people. And he said, hey, Jamie, um, you know, are you interested in learning about body dysmorphic disorder? Because there's a lot of people who have this problem out there and they can actually respond pretty well to medications, but I don't know any psychiatrists really that know how to treat it um, to refer to. And so would you be interested in me, me like teaching you about it? And, and so I said, yeah, definitely. And so he started you know, teaching me about it and then wow. some patients and I, and and I and so the few things really struck me, and I think this is the reason why I really decided that this is a population that I would like to understand better. I'd like to help them clinically, um, treat them, um, try to figure out better ways of treating them, and and to be able to understand the brain to be able to develop um, novel ways of treating them, and especially be related to these distortions of per, of perception, like visual perception, because in hearing that people are perceiving these things that other people don't don't see or they don't seem the same way um it, it really kind of piqued my interest of what exactly is going on like what level of the brain is this happening is this it, could this be something at, at like a low low level visual perceptual distortion or could it be something kind of what's called higher up in the brain of um, higher order um integration of visual systems with um other systems related to emotion or cognition or memory um, or is it something that is more purely a cognitive distortion so that what they're seeing is is kind of like there's no problem with the visual system but it's more how they're in how they're interpreting it in relationship to their own internal um, sense of self or um, sense of defectiveness how much of it's influenced by emotion because the people experience very strong emotions, like when they look in the mirror and is that distorting their perception mm -hmm. somehow? So really like the field knew nothing or very, very little about what was going on there, except there had been a study suggesting that people might have some abnormalities in visuospatial organization. Um, th there was actually just one study, I think at the time, or maybe <laughs> two studies at the time. So, so I decided, well, I, I would like to understand the brain. And I, I think neuroimaging is a, a a decent tool to be able to try to understand the brain, you know, amongst other tools. And so I d decided that I would like to do research in it and learn neuroimaging. So I hadn't learned neuroimaging at that time. Mm -hmm. So I decided this is, I would like to learn neuroimaging in the context of learning um, about what's happening in bodies works or specifically with visual perceptions. And then as I started working with patients, then this, this further drove, drove me um, to keep doing this because, because they, the people, these people need help and mm -hmm. they, they suffer so much and they suffer for all the reasons that we just talked about is that it, you know, not only do they have these misperceptions and, and feel ugly, but it's, it's so hard for them to talk about it with other people. And it's, and it's like misunderstood and people have so much shame and the insight gets in the way of people mm -hmm. getting treatment or sometimes they'll start treatment and they'll drop out because they don't really think it's a, a, that the problem's a mental problem. They think it's a, a physical problem. Um, so, so it, it's a, it seemed like a very worthy endeavor to try to help people understand the brain better, to develop better treatments. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And, and so amazing that your supervisor was kind of like, do you want to learn more about this? And then it was something that really interested you. That sounds brilliant. Um, and I wanted to ask you a bit more. You mentioned about, you know, the link to OCD and the link to eating disorders. So could you explain a bit more to us about what 
the similarities or maybe the the differences are as well there yeah exactly so so i mentioned some some kind of well, that OCD, there's some overlap, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of people having OCD and having body disorder and the other way around. So it's about roughly 15% or so people mm-hmm. with OCD have body dysmorphic disorder. And of people with body dysmorphic disorder, about 30% of them have OCD. Wow. So, and that, and, and seeing it that way means that like if somebody has OCD and they, ha- or they have body dysmorphic disorder and they have OCD, like they might have some of the kind of classic symptoms of OCD, uh, you know, so they might have contamination fears or obsessive um, bad thoughts that are disturbing to them or needing for symmetry or order or uh, any other types of OCD symptoms, checking, things like that. Um, but this, but P- the BDD symptoms themselves also have characteristics that are very much like obsessions and compulsions mm. in people with OCD. So I mentioned preoccupation. So preoccupation is that term is very close to obsession. I think we use it clinically in a very, very similar way um, because it the because it's a thought, it, somebody keeps thinking about the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, and it's difficult not to think about it. Uh, and then the repetitive behaviors that are described for BDD are very, very similar to compulsive behaviors in OCD. And these are behaviors that people feel very strongly driven to do Mm -hmm. to try to make themselves feel better in some way. Mm -hmm. And for OCD, like checking might temporarily make them feel better because they feel like they checked it and it looks okay. Um, And in BDD, the same thing can happen is that sometimes somebody will check, like sometimes they'll take a picture and then they'll look at it and be like, okay, that actually doesn't look like as bad and they feel a little bit relieved. And then that's the way that that behavior gets reinforced because mm-hmm. maybe one out of five or 10 times that they do that, it ends up making them feel a little bit better Then that behavior may, will get reinforced and they'll end up doing mm-hmm. it again because it did actually bring them some relief one of the times. So a lot of times it doesn't and it can even make them worse. And that's the vicious cycle of this is that the behaviors tend to make people worse. So anyway, there's that similar pattern of obsessive like thoughts and then compulsive behaviors or repetitive behaviors and uh and there's also some evidence that some of the neurobiology is similar mm-hmm. as well and and uh there are twin studies that have been done that have looked at um, shared susceptibility uh for body dysmorphic disorder and ocd symptoms and there seems to be some shared susceptibility that wow. are that's genetically related um, so those are all, that's very strong evidence that they're mm. related in some way. Um, with eating disorders, then there's also many similarities in terms of symptoms too. So um, so in eating disorders, and I think in particular anorexia nervosa, where many people with anorexia nervosa have a distorted perception of their appearance, um, I would say not, not everybody, but many do. Mm. And that would be just usually that they're, that they have um, fat on their body or certain parts of their body, or their body's too large in certain areas um, or too round. And um, this is something that other people don't see when they look at them. In fact, if they're in a, you know, in an under, in a very low weight stage, they might look emaciated to other people, um, but to themselves, they don't. And then they see that they have what seems to be excessive fat in certain regions. So that seems to be a misperception of appearance that is similar. And that's something that we've studied in some of our research, our imaging research is um, studied to directly compare the two 
and compare to them to control populations that, um, that don't have those disorders. And then um, other, so, so there's some similarities and people with eating disorders similar to BDD or especially anorexia nervosa and also maybe a little bit lesser extent bulimia nervosa um, can also have some obsessive thoughts as well about their about body, about their body or about food or eating exercise and they may do repetitive behaviors related to that like ritualistic ways of eating mm. um kind of rigid ways of doing um, exercise they feel compulsively driven to do exercise um, they might do rituals related to calorie counting things like that so there's many obsessions and compulsions that <laughs> people with eating disorders have and then also genetic studies in, in anorexia nervosa have suggested that um, the the liability for there's an intersection between liability for obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms and also anorexia nervosa symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the three, these three areas, there's a lot of overlap in symptoms and in, in some genetics as well. And then another neurobiological piece to that, which came out of some of the studies we did comparing anorexia to, to body dysmorphic disorder is that uh, people with anorexia um, and people with body dysmorphic disorder have some abnormalities in the visual systems mm -hmm. in terms of brain activation patterns. So generally diminished brain activation in parts of the visual system responsible for processing what's called the global and holistic element of an image. So kind of the big picture elements okay. and reduced connectivity. And so there's an overlapping pattern that we saw. So it wasn't identical, but it was, it was overlapping and generally kind of in the same direction. Um, and that was for when people were viewing bodies or viewing faces or even viewing houses. So even things that weren't appearance related, but were like objects, there were abnormalities that were, that were shared. So it suggested there's maybe a shared phenotype of perceptual um, disturbances in anorexia and BDD. So is that kind of, um, that reduced uh, like activity in that holistic area is that why people people are quite detailed focused why they focus on specific things do you think or yeah that so that's the the, the theory that we put together mm -hmm. from this and the model is that uh people with body dysmorphic disorder and and possibly people with anorexia nervosa the brain systems that um that are used for understanding and processing the the overall shape and configuration of an, a visual figure like face, for example, or body uh, is underactive and kind of deficient. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen some evidence there might be hyperactivity in parts of the brain responsible for processing details <laughs> in body dysmorphic disorder. But, but we've seen that as a less strong and less consistent finding. Okay. across our studies, the more consistent finding is diminished global um, processing. But if you think about how, so a model for visual processing is that there's, for an, an accurate representation of an image, there's there should be a balance between how our brains are processing global elements and how they're processing detail elements so that we can contextualize what details we see. And so even if for example, there aren't specifically abnormalities in detail processing. If it's accompanied by a deficiency in global processing, then what's happening is you're seeing details and your brain has no way of knowing 
how large or small they are or like how prominent or minuscule they are. And so it's kind of like if you, let's say that somebody had a concern about um, pock marks on their skin, maybe maybe they did have some acne when they were a child and they do have some um, pock marks, but when other people look at them, they don't really notice them, you know, at at arm's length, most people are like arm's length or more Mm -hmm. than somebody else. Um, so they're not like getting in really close and they don't notice them, but, uh, but the person sees it and they might see it because partially because they might like get in really close to the mirror um, <laughs> and then they can see it, uh, or they, um, it, or they feel it like they can touch their skin mm. and then that contributes to their idea of like what it is. Uh, so, so, so anyway, there, there could be something there. They could see it. There, it's an imperfection, definitely, but it's very, very, very small. And so, when somebody else looks at their face, they don't they don't notice it because actually the default way that most people process visual information is mostly global. So it's called a, like a global precedence effect. Is that with when presented with details and global elements, um, you know, certainly like uh, faces uh, that what happens is it's mostly the global information that gets processed and less so the details. It's only if you kind of need details that you can start to hone your attention onto certain areas and move your eye to that area. And in a way you're like getting a laser focus on that area and Mm -hmm. then you can pull out some details, but that doesn't happen, you know, as a kind of a default. Um, So somebody with BDD, what, the model of what might be happening is that their brains are not um, enough adding that element of the mm-hmm. global processing so that the details they see, they they just seem very large to them. And when you add in the emotional reaction they get to it, then that also probably amplifies both the detail processing and also the subjective experience of, of how like prominent it is because it has mm-hmm. an emotional resonance to it. And then because it has that emotional resonance to it as well, they it gets stored in memories mm. more strongly. Wow! So I, hopefully that made sense. I was, no, uh, yeah, no. I, it's okay. it's it 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 really does make sense, um, and I think that's what I'm finding so fascinating is you know having it kind of explained, and it it really does make sense. Um, you know, if somebody is more focused on something, then it's definitely going to be more apparent. I think one question I have is I get the sort of, you know, if someone did have maybe a few marks on their face, let's say, um, and to them, they were very, you know, they had that detailed focus, so they would look at the marks and it felt like they were much larger to them. Then I guess that kind of makes sense in my head. I think what doesn't make sense, and I don't know whether you have any idea about this, is, you know, if somebody let's say has anorexia and they are completely emaciated but they see themselves in a much larger body that i i'm like how is that possible because that's that doesn't just feel like something that's sort of you know amplified that feels like a complete um what's the word delusion delusion yeah um yeah that feels like a complete delusion that it's not there at all um do you have any idea about that yeah, so so we do have some ideas about that, and and other people have thought about this question as well. And um, so a similar a similar thing could be operating in people with anorexia mm-hmm. nervosa too, because one of because people with anorexia nervosa are body part focused. Um, so there there have been many studies actually for 
a few decades now that have looked at visual perceptual distortions in people with anorexia nervosa and um, and also trying to so several studies have tried to parse whether it's a like a whole body effect um, or it's mostly a body part effect or there's some kind of combination of um, whole body overestimation plus body part size overestimation and there's evidence for both but there's more evidence or there's evidence for kind of a stronger body part effect and so that suggests that people with with anorexia nervosa also are overly focused on specific parts and so mm. a similar thing might be happening where for example um, if you hone your attention on your abdomen area for example especially if you're sitting down then there are your because your body's kind of like folded right so your skin folds over and that happens to everybody because their skin they have skin that's gonna happen um that it folds over but but they see folds and so the folds um, may look like they're full like folds of fat or then it looks like there's fat like excessive fat in that area and then if your brain is not contextualizing that okay yeah there are some folds but the folds are kind of small when you look at how the rest of my body is and it's probably not that noticeable because it's kind of small uh then then you might think hey yeah, this is very prominent and I, I have fat on my body or if you'd like just focus on part of your thigh or maybe just the back of your arm let's say you know where you have everybody has like a little bit of redundant skin back there <laughs> um and but if you you know focus in on it then it could look like it's bigger than it actually is if your brain is not contextualizing it well so it could be that but we don't know everything there is to know about visual perception or perceptual distortions in in anorexia i mean not even bdd of course either but um so that that's a mod that's a theory um you know and it's contributed from some evidence like from different neuroimaging studies some that we've done some other people have done and also some other types of experiments as well i mean you know theoretically it does make a lot of sense um and i remember somebody saying to me once um you know, if you stare at a wall long enough, thinking there's a mark there, there'll be a mark if you stare there long enough. Mm -hmm. And that always really resonated with me. You know, if you're just focusing on one part of your body, telling yourself that it's bigger, then it's probably going to seem bigger once you've been staring at it for a while. Um, so you kind of spoke about um, like the activity in the brain, how that might be different. Um, but I also know that you've done work on sort of like the structure of the brain and also the neurochemistry. Um, so I'd be really interested to hear how that sort of in the research has been altered in BDD. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, we, we've done some research looking at um, brain structure in body dysmorphic disorder. And one of the recent studies that we published, we, we focused on parts of the visual cortex which we had found to be um, underactive um, or there was diminished connectivity from some of the functional studies. So that kind of informed our particular search for regions that might have um, abnormal volumes in the brain. And then we, um, we did a technique where to define, to help define the boundaries of the, those volumes we used uh, um, and an atlas that was developed from histology. So it, was, it wasn't developed so much on kind of the outer brain landmarks. It was develop, developed based on the cell 
composition. Um, so it helped, I think it helps kind of delineate areas um, maybe a little bit more precisely based on function because the cell composition tends to go with the function. So it, it's a, a bit of a newer technique that we use. And I think it probably helped us be able to have more sensitivity to mm. understand specific regions, especially with, um, in, um, in concert with using picking regions that we'd found to have abnormal activity. And so we found that there were larger volumes in parts of the visual cortex. And uh, this, and so the larger volumes um, was, it was, so it, we still don't completely understand what is going on. Like, why are these volumes larger? And how does that relate to the function um, exactly? So we know that in these regions, you know, in, in the same samples, because this is all derived from the same samples that we had derived the functional imaging from, uh, that there's larger volumes. So there's a couple possibilities. One is that it, there could have been a failure of neurodevelopment because in, in neurodevelopment, parts of the brain um, grow over time or they increase in size or they change their composition of like uh, white matter and myelination, for example. Um, but also many parts of the brain need to um, get smaller and kind of shrink and do what's called um, pruning, which is um, basically like cutting the brain kind of like cuts back some of the <laughs> neural processes that aren't like the critical ones that they need for certain functions. You know, after the brain's been functioning for a while, it's called pruning. And then the brain actually get parts of the brain get a little bit smaller. So if you have a failure in that, the brain might remain like too large. So it could be a, a sign that it might be a failure of neurodevelopment. Um, or it could be that having BDD itself and doing the behaviors related to it and focusing, spending a lot of time focusing on specific regions and, and maybe um, trying the visual system therefore is differently activated um, could secondarily cause this. So in other words, it may not be that somebody was, was either born with that abnormality or developed neurodevelopmentally because of genetic kind of programming, but it could have been that other symptoms of the illness like cause that to happen over time. Um, so it's, it still remains to be seen what, what to make of that exactly. And then we've done some other structural studies that have to do with white matter. So understanding white matter connectivity um, and, and we'd found that there's some white matter connections that were associated with uh, severity of symptoms and also insight. Um, so that was a particular symptom measure that you can measure is like how, um, wh what is their insight about their illness? And the insight is consisted of, consists of, in this particular measure, their ability to recognize that they have a mental illness that's causing them to see things in a different way um, versus that this is something that is, it's, there, it's a, like an actual physical um, deficit, and it makes them look ugly. Other people see them that way, etc. So that would be kind of poor insight, and good insight would be understanding that hey, like my, basically my mind's playing, playing tricks on me. Um, it's not really this way. Um, this is because I have an illness called body dysmorphia. So, so what we found is that some of the white matter tracks that um, are involved in, in visual processing and connecting um, the uh, parts parts of the brain that also are involved in emotion and memory to the visual system um, kind of scaled their, or their white matter microstructure indices kind of scaled with the degree of insight. So it might affect insight as well. So, and that kind of makes sense that if the brain's not communicating well in these white matter tracks um, uh, related to visual processing that somebody might have, you know, more consistent and poor perception 
And therefore, it's harder for them to refute in their mind that that is um, not reality, but the way that their brain is like misprocessing information. That's so interesting. Is is the white matter something that can be developed? So basically what I'm kind of getting at there is if you went into a treatment centre and you were kind of had no insight, you didn't realise that the kind of distortions that you were having were based on body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. And then through treatment and stuff, you develop more insight. And then actually you're able to look in the mirror and say, it's not actually what I'm perceiving. It's the body dysmorphia. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that would be caused by the development of white matter? Or is that sort of just like a cognitive process that somebody's gone through? Um, you mean to, to to end up causing abnormalities or to help them improve the, like if their insight improves, you mean? Yeah, if their insight improves. In the procedures. Um, it, it probably happens in concert. So if, um, well, I guess there's different ways that people can improve. So people can improve from BDD by, uh, taking certain medications. So there are medications Mm -hmm. that can improve symptoms. So the serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, can work to improve Mm -hmm. many of the symptoms, not all, not all the symptoms, but many of them. And then there's also types of psychotherapy that can help. Um, for example, types of cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy um, combined with other techniques. And so people's symptoms can improve and their insights sometimes can improve as well. Insight can actually improve from serotonin reuptake inhibitors too. Um, but we don't know what happens in the brain when people's symptoms improve <laughs> because no one has done those studies. That would be interesting. Yeah. So it, that's, a, that's an unanswered question. So, for example, like what, the question you asked is a very good question, which is, if their insight's improving, is that because um, white matter tracks are changing in their microstructure? Are they like normalizing or maybe even other tracks are increasing? Like there's evidence that other tracks are increasing their um, ability to transmit information as a way of compensating for the other mm. tracks that are not working well, because that, that actually often happens in psychiatric moments is that when symptoms improve, it's not that the underlying abnormality has been corrected, but that successful compensatory processes have been put into action. Mm. So that's another possibility too, but mm. we need to do those studies to really understand mm. that. And then, um, but that, that's, but it's an important one, especially because if, because insight is such a, I mean, that example insight is such an important part because if somebody's insight is, is good, that means that they're more likely to seek treatment and probably stay in treatment. Mm. Um, and it it removes a little bit of a layer of suffering because they kind of see like it's this isn't kind of me it's just something about my brain that's not working that well and and I'm going to try to fix it I'm trying to get better and then there's some things that seem to help to get it better so I'm going to work on that so that it's a really really crucial part and if we can help people with improving insight um, especially maybe even like in a beginning part of treatment then the other parts of treatment might fall into place better in even just the very basics of going to treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, from personal experience, I 
found the process of gaining insight to be kind of the most important within recovery um, because it meant that, you know, when I looked in the mirror and suddenly kind of went to panic or didn't like something I saw, I could almost pause and take a step back and be like, what I'm seeing right now isn't necessarily what's there. And it it almost gave my head an excuse of like, you know, you don't need to get upset or distressed because you can't actually see what's real. So it could be anything. Um, but I'm really interested um, in what you mentioned there with the SSRIs as to kind of do we know the process of how they work to help improve the symptoms of body dysmorphia? Yeah, we know. Unfortunately, we know very little about <laughs> SSRIs work as well. And as you can probably um, gather from what I've been mentioning is that body dysmorphia disorder has not really been researched as much mm -hmm. as other psychiatric disorders and especially relative to how common it is and and how severe it can be and how life-threatening it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, it really has not been studied very much. So there's so many unanswered things that we need and um, I'm hoping that people listening to this podcast will be inspired to be interested in studying body dysmorphic disorder and um, helping join the community of researchers um, and clinicians because we need mm -hmm. clinicians to treat body dysmorphic disorder for this as well so we don't know how that works. we some of the best guesses that we have come from um some some of what we know about how ssris might work in people with ocd um, and i say might work because we, we don't know you know 100 how they work but we do have some information about how they work in ocd and the similar medications and similar doses of medications seem to help people with BDD as help people with OCD. And so I mentioned serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, usually at relatively high doses. So high being often two or three or sometimes four times, sometimes five times the dose that somebody might take for depression, let's say, which is another common reason why people take those medications or other anxiety problems. And that also it takes longer for the symptoms to improve in BDD than it does for depression or anxiety, similar to what we see in OCD. So it's very common that people won't see much of any kind of improvement until maybe they've been on it six weeks or sometimes eight weeks, sometimes even 12 weeks. And the full effects might not come until like 12 or 14 weeks into mm -hmm. the medication. So you could be on the medication for two or even three months and not notice anything. And then, this, and then the benefits might kick in. But that's a very important thing for people out there who are taking these medications or being prescribed it is wait long enough because that medication might actually help even though it doesn't seem like it's doing anything or it might be causing a lot, you know, some side effects in the beginning that are troubling. But um, if, you, if you wait, then a lot of times it does give time for it to kick in and also may just make sure you're on a high enough dose. So in OCD, then there have been studies looking at, there have been like pre and post neuroimaging studies and other studies looking at what changes before and after treatment. So um, very classically in OCD, like classically in the sense of that many studies have actually kind of converged on finding this is that some of the hyperactivity in parts of the brain called the frontostriatal systems are also called the corticostriatal flammocortical tracts. Um, <laughs> that part of some of the brain, brain regions involved in that, which is kind of a circuit in the brain that has to do with um, evaluating the kind of um, salience of certain stimuli and then deciding on motor actions to, uh, to, to take action to like avoid something or to um, pursue something. So that 
that kind of circuit in the brain is, tends to be hyperactive in people with OCD. And many studies have demonstrated that. And then when people get treated, the hyperactivity tends to decrease, or at least maybe not immediately, but then after some time, it tends to decrease. So those kind of, kind of studies haven't done BDD, but um, I would suspect that it might we might see similar things, especially because some of those regions that have been found to be hyperactive, we've found to be hyperactive in BDD too. Um, so we did find that in one of our studies, the part of the brain called the caudate, another part called the orofrontal cortex were hyperactive. And also the degree of hyperactivity was correlated with the severity of obsessions and compulsions in people with BDD, just like we, just like people have found in OCD also. Um, and um, some, some studies have suggested that one of the um, areas that high dose SSRIs affect with a time course of like at least six weeks is the orbifrontal cortex. And so it seems like that, that part of the brain, if any, may be one of the most critical parts um, where some of the activity might be normalized. But that part of the brain, of course, doesn't act alone. You know, it is acting like within a circuit and the circuit itself is acting within kind of a larger set of connections with other parts of the brain as well. I think that's that's just the part that probably has the most prominent abnormalities, and that's why it's been seen in many studies. But now we're starting to see that in OCD, for example, there are, there are other systems um, that show abnormal activity um, across many different regions of the brain, um, including the, the cerebellum, um, the visual cortex, uh, other parts of the prefrontal cortex, parietal cortex, pretty much almost every lobe of the brain. Which I imagine makes it quite difficult to then treat if everywhere is getting involved rather than just a specific region. Yeah, it it, it is in some ways um, because, it, and that's also I think one of the reasons why the treatments in psychiatry um, often are similar to kind of the, the in terms of the outcomes that you see in OCD is a similar story for medications for a, a lot of different disorders where um, partial symptom improvement is kind of the norm. And mm. so medications may help reduce the symptoms either to a certain degree um, and or it may affect only certain sets of symptoms and certain phenotypes, certain behaviors and not others. And that's why we need to continue to work on developing ways of developing new treatments and um, understanding the brain, understanding um, what's happening, what, what might be not going wrong in the brain <laughs> so that we can figure out how to target specific treatments mm-hmm. in in kind of like a rational way. Um, and that's what I, I believe. It's really important to understand the brain um, before um, testing treatments because uh, it's very expensive and time consuming and um, often um, doesn't work to to test uh, like a medication or, or other te- techniques, brain stimulation, for example, um, without having like a, a good understanding of what circuits mm-hmm. you're targeting or what systems you're targeting. Um, so we're, we're actually working on, um, working towards developing a possible types of treatment for BDD based on some of this research that we've done, uh, where under- trying to, so understanding some of the perceptual distortions um, has led us to this model of imbalance between global and local visual processing. And then um, thinking about, so first of all, figuring out and then starting to do early testing and what types of interventions might help remediate 
this imbalance. And so we've been testing um, a perceptual technique. It's kind of a, what we call an attention modulation technique. And then also testing a one that's more perceptual technique where it's more that the, the image that people are looking at is altered in the sense of being shown for a very short duration of time, which kind of forces the brain to process holistically. And now we're at the stage of uh, testing how that affects visual perception and how it affects eye behaviors and how it affects emotions and whether the effects can um, build and kind of accumulate with repeated trials of it and whether there's kind of a carryover effect. So if that does change the brain, which we've shown that it does, we've already done some of those early studies and published them, but now we're trying to see is um, do some of those changes actually persist, you know, after you do multiple trials of it. And if so, then we'll have from the study that we're doing right now, we're recruiting for it right now too, um, here in Toronto. And if, and if so, then this, the next step would be to do like an early clinical trial of using a perceptual retraining technique to see about changing people's perception. And then this, that itself would not likely be the only thing that people with BDD need for treatment because it's not just about perception. It's also about tendency for obsessive thoughts, compulsive behaviors, and, and other things, many other things too. Like uh, many people with BDD have um, deficiencies in uh, their ability to like read other people's emotional expressions accurately um, and also uh, to be able to um, connect with people socially, you know, in large part, because people have had BDD often since they've been adolescents. So it's, it's kind of like impaired their psychosocial development in many people in some ways and maybe um, affected social skills and also just not having as many people in their lives. So that social element of it is like really critical too. And that has to be worked on usually in therapy. So it would be, this would be like a module that could be added to other forms of treatment. Um, you know, restructuring thoughts, like when people have good enough insight to be able to do what's called cognitive restructuring, to revise their thinking to be more realistic, like about, for example, how important appearance is in general and how you evaluate yourself or how other people are evaluating you. So that's kind of what we're working towards right now. We're at the stage of, it's essentially like pre-translational, uh, this work that we're doing. And then we're also test, gonna be testing soon um, using transcranial magnetic stimulation to part of the visual cortex to uh, see if we can enhance the brain's plasticity. So enhance this effect that is ha happening from this visual attentional modulation. So in essence, it would be combining the two. And TMS can potentially have the effect of changing brain plasticity to make the brain more kind of shapeable and changeable. And maybe that would help increase the magnitude of the effect of the behavioral intervention or make it last longer but more persistent. So that's another area that we're, we're studying. It sounds amazing. Um, yeah, it sounds in incredible, the work that you're doing. I just want to kind of check. So the study that you mentioned first is the sort of aim of that is it's a long term aim to change the structure of the brain or have I kind of gone too far with that? Um, it, it might change the structure of the brain, but mm -hmm. the, 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 um, what we're measuring, what we think that this might change is actually the perception. And so we are measuring brain connectivity mm -hmm. uh, to see if that changes. That's more functional connectivity. Okay. Um, so 
the functional measure is is kind of more of is like one of the main measures that we're looking at more so than structure. We also can look at structure and we will look at structural changes um, because we are doing imaging before and after people do um, several trials of this on like three different days over mm-hmm. about a week or so. Um, and but we but the other things that we're looking at, not only brain connectivity changes, we're also looking at how their eye behaviors change. So for example, when they're looking at their face, are they doing the same kind of scanning behaviors or are they able to hold their gaze more constant? Um, mm-hmm. And people with BDD tend to do a lot of scanning of their face. Um, and then the, in addition to also sometimes honing in on specific areas that they're concerned about, and then some people with BDD avoid looking at certain areas. So those are all things that we can measure with eye tracking technology mm-hmm. um, and also looking at emotional arousal and then how emotional arousal, eye behaviors and brain connectivity interact, how the three interact to contribute to perceptual distortions. Um, so that's, we can measure all that kind of like a baseline and then we can see with this intervention um, what things change and what may mediate that change. So let's say that our main outcome that we're looking at is global versus local perception. So we have this computer task of global and local perception uses faces that are not, not participants' faces, but other people's faces that are either upright or turned upside down. Um, it's called the face inversion task. And just very briefly, like if you if you mostly do global processing, then your ability to recognize and your speed at recognizing it, an upside down phase diminishes a lot. But if you mainly do detail processing, it doesn't diminish as much when you turn upside down. So that's that's the one of the measures that we're using. Um, so if if we find that this um, intervention then changes that perception, then we can further understand what are some of the things that mediate that change? Is it that their brain connectivity changed a lot? Um, in, and in what direction? Is it that their eye behaviors change? Is it their emotions change? Like maybe after repeatedly viewing the image in the way that we have them view it, that they're, they're not um, having as much distress when they're looking at it. And perhaps that itself is making a big change. And we can look at the relative contributions of the different things that could change with this. And by setting up the experiment like this, then um, if even if we get kind of a small signal and say, well, the perception actually didn't really change that much, um, but we see that the eye behaviors um, did have a really strong role in it, then the next iteration of it, we might um, focus more on how we can change the eye behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think that's the advantage of doing the research this way in like understanding the brain mechanisms as much as possible beforehand and then measuring brain mechanisms as they change, then if the treatment doesn't work quite as well as you'd hope, you can make some rational changes to it and tweak it to try to make it work better. So that's, that's kind of what we're, we're planning. Yeah. I was just thinking then how, um, you know, even though it's not great that there's not been much research on body dysmorphic disorder it's actually so exciting for you because you almost kind of have so many different avenues to look at and there's so many different things to explore which you know just you just hearing what you were saying there I'm excited for you um so I can't imagine kind of you know what it's like for you to have all of these ideas and these different things that could potentially be happening I guess could it be different for different people or do you think Mm. you know is it's kind of one option yeah great question and that's and it's and I'm glad you brought that up because most likely it's going to be different for different people. That that seems to be the lesson that we've 
learned, I think, mm -hmm. in understanding the brain. The brain is so complex, and um, because of its complexity, it can differ in many different ways. And that people with different abnormalities in in their brain and their thinking patterns might end up um, having symptoms that look very similar. So like the endpoint could look very similar, you know, doing like repetitive behaviors related to your appearance or um, perceiving that your appearance looks defective in some way. There could be many different avenues that people could reach mm -hmm. to get there. And um, the, but the treatments that we have, and you know, this is a story that many people have heard probably many times by this point is, you know, that we have those for treatments kind of like one size fits all. And they're not exactly one size fits all because there are actually different combinations of medications that seem to work better for people or like combinations of therapy and medications or different types of therapy. Um, but the, I think the main problem is that it's try, kind of still trial and error mm -hmm. mostly, which is coming in. We don't really know exactly like what treatments will be the best for each person. And, um, the, but this will be a way for this particular study. We do hope to understand some more um, groupings like clustering of people. So are there, are there um, clusters of people? Are there groups of people where maybe their perceptual distortion is mainly driven by emotional arousal, and other people where it's mainly driven by abnormal brain connectivity, and other people where maybe it's mainly driven by eye behavior abnormalities? And those, even the eye behavioral abnormalities, like some groups of people might be mostly avoiding looking at certain areas <laughs> of their appearance, and that actually could cause distortions because mm -hmm. their brain is not able to like update to get yeah. an accurate, like updated information. And so in, in the absence of having updated information, your brain may essentially hold on to a memory that you have of how, let's say your skin looked at one point when you had a huge blemish on it because you had a little breakout or something, or a little blemish <laughs> looking at you. And then you have that memory and then you don't look at your face very much because mm -hmm. you avoid because it's so distressing, look at it, but then, you never get like updated information. And the fascinating thing about that part with the memory is that whenever we look at something that we've seen before, our memories, visual memories of that will feed into, it's almost literally feeding into the visual system. And so we will never be able to see it without that lens of how we've seen it in the past. Wow. Yeah. And so that, so that could be an issue, like go, going back to, well, there are people that are avoiding and then they may need a different intervention than people that do too much scanning. They may mean mm -hmm. like an opposite or maybe not exactly opposite, but they mean like a different type of intervention. So um, we hope that our study will be able to do that. You know, it's, um, it's larger than studies we've done in the past because you do need a, like a lot of people in order to get some kind of stable estimates of what these subgroups are. Um, we do, you know, we do have, um, it's not a huge study, but it's a, for neuroimaging, it's a medium or size study for one group to do. So we hope to start to get some ideas about that. But we, but again, I want to go back to the, the message of, you know, there's, it, I, I find that this work is very exciting and there are many things that we don't know and we can explore and it's a frontier in many ways, but we do really need more people in the field mm -hmm. to study it because I have, I have, and we, my research group, you know, there are things that we don't see that we're, we have our own blind spots or we have, we've had a perspective on this um, that can use fresh ideas, mm -hmm. honestly, you know, and it just like everybody, you know, needs more people and more ideas. We need more diversity of people in the field as well. 
um, people that um, we need more. I think that the field in general, like in much of psychiatry can use more input from people who've, who have lived experiences um, and can learn from that and can help inform research avenues. And, uh, and yeah, we, we just, we need more people mm-hmm. in general to be researching these problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, you know, I don't want to put myself up for it, but um, the study I'm currently working on is a neuroimaging study. And so if you want to fly me over to Canada, I'll be happy to get involved. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's been honestly fascinating to chat to you. I think the research that you and your team are doing just sounds incredible. And I think it's going to make such a massive change because like you said, I, I just don't think that body dysmorphic disorder is spoken about enough. Um, I don't think people really understand it. And I think, like you said, it can kind of people just think it comes down to sort of a, you know, being quite narcissistic or a bit obsessed with the way that you look, but it goes, you know, it's not that. And it, and it goes so much further. And like you said, it can have really sort of detrimental effect, effects on people's lives. Um, so if people are as interested as me, which I'm sure they will be in keeping up to date with the work that you're doing. Is there anywhere that they can kind of keep up to date with the research and, and follow the team that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. So we, so our, our uh, lab, our research group here at the University of Toronto and the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, it's called the Brain, Body and Perception Lab. And so you can Google that and you'll find it. Um, and you, we also, uh, so it, um, it's bbp.lab.utoronto.ca, or you can just Google it, Brain, Body, and Perception Lab. And also, we uh, are on Twitter as well, so you can find us, Brain, Body, and Perception, and uh, and other social media as well. I think those are the, the two right now that probably the best places to find out about it. And then you can get information about how to participate on our website. Uh, and, um, let's see other ways of getting in contact with us. So I think that's probably the best place. I don't want to give too many different avenues, but I think you'll be able to find us either way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, yeah. Thank you for everything you shared. Yeah. Thank you so much for the great questions and for inviting me to talk. And this has been, um, really great experience. So I appreciate it. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.